Today we begin Sefer Nehemiah. Nehemiah is considered part of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah together were, are counted as one book in Tanakh. Uh, the split for Ezra and Nehemiah originally actually came from the church, but today it's became accepted to, to sort of refer to them as two separate books, uh, perhaps originating from the authorship of the two books. Uh, what we know about the authorship is that Talmud has two differing statements. Uh, the first statement says Ezra wrote the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The second says Nehemiah wrote the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it is possible to understand them as two conflicting opinions. Rashi takes it in a different route and understands that. What that means is most of the book of Ezra was written by Ezra, and most of the book of Nehemiah, the second half, which we're starting to study today, was written by Nehemiah. Supporting Rashi, the first pasuk of Nehemiah, as we'll see, Divrei Nehemiah ben Chachaliah, uh, it starts as his monologue, and as we'll see, it's actually mostly, the first, in the beginning of the book, is in first person. Uh, so it definitely seems to lend itself to the fact that Nehemiah did write this portion of the book. Before we begin to discuss the historical parameters and background of Sefer Nehemiah and a little bit of Ezra as well, uh, I'd like to take a moment to frame Sefer Nehemiah uh, into what we can take out of it and why it's so important today. Uh, Sefer Nehemiah, as we'll see, is the book of the building of the walls of Yerushalayim, the book of political troubles, uh, the book of Nehemiah sort of being in a political situation and leading the Jewish people um, both through navigating its enemies, uh, through building up physical infrastructure, and through negotiating with the people themselves, um, eventually at the end of the book, making Britamana, making a new covenant with the people and God, um, renewing their dedication to the laws of Hashem and the way the society as a whole runs, um, making it a society, uh, a Jewish society with Jewish ideas and values. Uh, and what's truly amazing about our time, and when we read Sefer Nehemiah, it's almost impossible not to notice, is we haven't been in a situation like Sefer Nehemiah for 2,000 years. Uh, we haven't been in the stage of building a society building a country, its physical infrastructure, its spiritual infrastructure, figuring out how the society will run on a day-to-day -day basis in such a long time. And today with the state of Israel, we're actually getting to relive building the society of the Jewish people. Ezra and Nehemiah together represented the physical and spiritual leadership. As we'll see, they sort of had slightly different roles in what they were focusing on. Uh, but it's truly amazing to see how much we, comparisons and relationships we can draw out that are similar to our situation today. Whether it's talking about physical defenses of the nation trying to prevent from attack, whether it's talking about people trying to badmouth the Jewish people and state to the rest of the world and sort of that national image uh, that, that they're building for themselves. It's almost impossible to not draw parallels to our current day situation. And even more so, it's almost impossible to not see uh, the hand of God and the guidance of God in the creation of the state and people of Israel. Well, the problems that Nehemiah faces are not very different than the problems we have today. He deals with intermarriage. He deals with the laws of Shabbat. He deals with social justice and people not treating others as they should be, uh, something which we could all take lessons from. And it's just truly amazing that we're, we're living in a time where we're almost reliving the times of Tanakh. For 2,000 years, people could have read Nehemiah 
and not been able to draw parallels between Nehemiah and the current state situation. It was a book of, of purely history of what happened at this time. Uh, it's so much more than that for us today. It's a blueprint for how God leads us to build a state, how God is planning for his people to return. Uh, and it's just truly an amazing thing to see as we we'll go through the book. And if there's one thing I hope I can relate to you through these recordings is how much we can relate to these book, this particular book of Tanakh and how much we can draw from it today. Getting into the historical context, uh, I'd like to start off by saying the historical context of Ezra and Nehemiah in general is incredibly complicated. Uh, there's various opinions among both traditional mythology and modern academia, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is if we look at the Nehemiah, we'll see how it starts off Bishnat Esrin. That's all we give Bishnat Esrin to what is not very clear. So right off the bat, we're not sure when exactly Nehemiah is coming into the picture. Uh, but much more beyond that, there's various statements about the identity of Nehemiah. Uh, so we'll see somebody, the Sender Olam identifies Nehemiah Zuvavel, which would essentially mean Nehemiah went up and down from Shushan to Yerushalayim several times. So we know it was at least two, but this would mean more than that. And additionally, and this is something I spoke about earlier in some of the books of Treasar, the documentation of the Persian kings in Tanakh uh, doesn't match up very well with what we know from Greek history today, or Greek historians about the Persian kings. The years don't match up exactly. Um, and obviously this is the time period of the Persian kings, uh, which makes it slightly more complicated than trying to, to give context into when exactly things happen. And finally, as we'll see, um, several events in Ezra and Nehemiah seem to be repeating, perhaps occurring simultaneously, perhaps not, and we'll discuss as we get to them. All these factors come in to make it pretty confusing to decipher exactly um, the time period Ezra and Nehemiah operated in. Uh, what I'd like to do is present three of the main opinions um, so which we could use to frame ourselves, and then we'll go in and explain the Perakim and Pesukim uh, as we come across them. Uh, the first opinion is that of the Talmud and the Rashi, which state that Nehemiah came up to Eretz Israel after Ezra, and according to Rashi, the timeline works as follows. We had Azharat Koresh in the year 370. Koresh, who was friendly to the Jews, made a declaration declaring that they're allowed to go up and begin the building of the Beit HaMikdash, as we saw in Ezra and some of the books of Trinasar as well. Kodesh was good to the Jews, allowed the Jews to build the Beit HaMikdash, but during that time, and during the time of his immediate successor, who was a Hashverosh, many people from around wanted to stop the building of the Beit HaMikdash, complained, and in the time of Ahasuerus finally succeeded in stopping the building of the Beit HaMikdash. This is what we saw in Ezra Perek Vav. We see over there that there seems to be two different groups of people at two different time periods trying to stop the building. One is Ahasuerus, as we said, and the other is Atakshashta, uh, who may or may not be the same people. We won't get too much into that as that's dealt with in Sefer Ezra. What is important is that so Kodesh was only king for a couple of years, for three years to be exact, and the building of the Beit HaMikdash got stopped immediately after him in the time period of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was king for 18 years, and so finally 20 years later, in the second year of Daryavish, the building of the Beit HaMikdash resumed. During that time period of the year 370, when the Beit HaMikdash started, that's when the original Ole Bavel came up, 
The leader of that group of people was Zerubavel. As we've mentioned, there are some opinions that Zerubavel was Nehemiah. We'll discuss that more as we come across Zerubavel and Nehemiah in the Pesukim. With that background now, we're back in the time of Daryavish, who reauthorized in his second year the rebuilding of the temple. The completion of the temple took place in his sixth year, and Ezra came up the following year, the seventh year, the year after the completion of the temple. Uh, that is written in Ezra, so that we do know. Um, now the question is, when does Nehemiah fit in? As we said, we'll see in the first Pesuk, he came in the 20th year. Rashid takes that to understand that Rashid came in the, that Nehemiah came up in the 20th year of Daryavish, meaning 13 years after Ezra. So Ezra was already well established within Israel. He had already done most of the work he is doing. Now it's Nehemiah coming after him. As we'll see, this does pose some difficulties because Nehemiah does seem to be repeating many of the things that Ezra has done. So it is difficult to say that Nehemiah came so much after Ezra and Ezra didn't deal with a lot of these issues or didn't deal with them well and Nehemiah had to redo them. It's for that reason that Tosfot say, on the other hand, that Nehemiah was indeed before Ezra and arrived before Ezra came on the scene. He interprets the 20th year to mean the 20th year from Cyrus, which means that Nehemiah actually came before the completion of the temple. Nehemiah was there before the temple and four years before Ezra came on the scene, Nehemiah was already operating. And we'll see as we go through the book how this difference of opinion plays out. To sum up the opinions of Rashi and Tosfot, Rashi holds that Nehemiah was coming after the completion of the temple, a couple of years after Ezra, and that's when he's operating, putting things into place, and being a political leader. Tosfot holds that Nehemiah indeed came before Ezra, and indeed before the building of the actual temple. So as we'll see in Nehemiah when they're discussing completing the building, uh, that would go for the temple as well, actually building the walls of the temple. Uh, the other opinion I'd like to discuss is the modern academia uh, and the way they interpret the timeline. The main difference between academics and modern thought and traditional Hazal in the years of in, of these books, Ezra and Hamya and the other books that deal with, with the kingdom of Shushan and the Persian kingdom, is the amount of Persian kings that were in the Persian lineage. According to Hazal, there's exactly four. There's Daryavish Hamadi, who was a Mede. He was one of the original conquerors and sort of the predecessors to the Persian emperor. Immediately after him is Koresh, who unifies the Persian kingdom. He's called the leader of the four corners of the earth. He's a great leader, brings all the Persian empire together. His son is Ahasuerus from the story of Esther, who rules for 18 years. And after that is Daryavish, who's Esther's son. And he pretty much ends off the lineage of the Persian kings. Already immediately after him is Alexander the Great and the Greeks come on board. Uh, modern academia places many more Persian kings into the lineage. So if we go back to Cyrus, who is the great leader and unifier of the Persian people, the one who makes the declaration to start the building of the Beit HaMikdash, after him we add a few more people in before we get to the time of Zerana Hamiyah. Namely, uh, he, there's Cambyses who rules for a few years. After him we have Darius I, who's not the Darius uh, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, though he is the Darius who rebuilds the temple. Around 40 years after him, we have Xerxes and Attic Xerxes, who modern scholars will equate 
with Akakshashta being Artaxerxes. Uh, obviously, the name is pretty similar. And after them again, we we have another Darius, Darius the second. Uh, so pretty simply, while modern academia has this lineage, uh, Hazal had basically equated. Uh, everyone from Cyrus onward, so Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and Darius I, Darius II are all the same person in Hazal, uh, which obviously affects the years quite a bit. And the way that relates to Ezra Nehemiah is that according to uh, this view of history, Ezra Nehemiah came significantly after the building of the temple. Uh, so we're not dealing with either according to Tosfot Nehemiah actually became before the building of the temple or she slightly after. Um, we're dealing with a gap of almost 80 years for Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is coming 80 years after the temple is already on the scene. Uh, we saw also, we mentioned in Tresar that this difference also affects Megillat Esther, whether the temple or not was built or not in the time of Megillat Esther. Uh, the same thing here with Nehemiah. Uh, was the temple already in operation for 80 years or not? It's going to be a difference uh, depending on which view of history you take. Obviously, this also affects... Uh, how you interpret the Aliyot to Yerushalayim. Uh, so according to this view, Zerubbabel, who was obviously in the time of Cyrus, he was the one who was going to build the Nate the Mikdash, was not during the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's almost impossible to say that Nehemiah was during the time period of Zerubbabel or was Zerubbabel himself. They are completely separated according to this opinion. Uh, so that's also something that we'll see it comes across in the Pesukim. Finally, it's worth noting that the years for the temple being built, um, according to traditional Mepharshim and Hazal, uh, the temple was built in 348 BCE. Uh, according to academia, the temple was actually rebuilt in 516 BCE. Uh, so quite a difference. It's something we spoke about a bit in the books of Tresar, uh, referred to as the 162 missing years. With that general historical overlay, I'd like to begin the book of Nehemiah. We'll delve a bit more into the context as we go through the Pesukim. Pesuk Aleph. Divrei Nehemiah ben Chachaliah, v'hi b'chodesh kislev, shnat esrim, v'ani hayiti b'shoshana bidah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Chachaliah, it was in the month of Kislev, the 20th year, and I was in Shoshana Bidah. Right off the bat, we noticed a couple of things we mentioned. It's in first person, Nehemiah is talking uh, as a storyteller, as a narrator, we see the 20th year here. As we mentioned, Rashi will interpret this as the 20th year to Darius. Uh, so after Ezra, 13 years after to be exact. So Sfot explained this as the 20th year to Kodesh, which would put him four years prior to the arrival of Ezra. Uh, the modern academics who, again, are say that the Kodesh and Darius spoke, spoken about in the building of the temple are very different than the players over here. We'll explain this 20th year as being the 20th year of Artaxerxes or Atakshashta, uh, which would put him, again, well after the building of the temple. The story is set here in Shushan Habirah, the capital of the Persian kingdom. If, as we mentioned, you identify Nehemiah as Ruvavel, um, as the Talmud seems to do, then you would have to say that when Zerubbabel went up with Kodesh, uh, the original one to go up, then that means that Nehemiah must have returned when the building of the temple was stopped or at some other point back to Shoshana Bidah. In general, Shoshana Bidah at this point was the most powerful city on earth. Uh, the Persian kingdom was the empire at the time. This was the capital kingdom, sort of the seat of power, if you will, uh, as we know from the story of the stair as well. Pasuk bet. Ve'yavoh hanani echad me'achai huva anashim me'yudah 
וישלם על היהודים הפליטה אשר נשארו מן השבי ועל ירושלים. And Hanani came, one of my brothers, who and the men from Yehuda, and I asked him about the Jews, the remnant that was left from the captivity, and about Yerushalayim. Pasukimu. Vayomruli hanisharim asher nisharu min hashavi sham ba-medina, b'ra'ag g'dola o b'chirpa, v'chomat Yerushalayim m'foratzet, o sh'areha nitzetu ba'esh. And they told me the leftovers who remained from the captivity over there in the territory are in a great state of distress and embarrassment, and the wall of Yerushalayim is breached, and its gates are aflame. Here, Nehemiah, apparently for the first time, is hearing about the state in Yerushalayim. It seems to be he didn't know that this was going on at the time, even as someone who was very powerful, as we'll see, in Shushan. Uh, this wasn't something that came up, wasn't something that was discussed. And for the first time, he's hearing from his brothers as a kind of casual conversation that the situation in Yerushalayim is untenable. As we mentioned, most Mepharshim hold that Nehemiah was indeed after Ezra, which would mean that while Ezra was in Yerushalayim and was doing the spiritual forms he was doing, wasn't able to fix the physical situation in which uh, the Bnei Seah were found in. It's for this reason, as we said, that Sosfor indeed says that Nehemiah preceded Israel, uh, because it doesn't make sense to Tosfot that Israel would leave the state in such a situation. Uh, and this is a good pasuk to highlight the differences between the focus of Israel and Nehemiah and what they were working on. According to most Mepharshim besides Tosfot, including Latin Academia, uh, Nehemiah was indeed after Israel. And so the question remains, uh, why was Israel leaving the, the physical situation in such a state? And the answer, and this is something that Hazal expressed as well, we see uh, consistently expressed throughout Hazal, is that Israel was looked at as a spiritual leader uh, par excellence. In the words of Hazal, if the Torah was not given by Moshe, it wouldn't have been given by Israel. Nehemiah, on the other hand, is not viewed as being on such a spiritual level as Israel. He's often criticized in Hazal for the attitude he takes to, uh, regarding himself and his lack of humility, something which we can directly contrast with Moshe and by extension Israel, uh, the givers of Torah, where humbleness is perhaps the, the greatest trait. And this helps explain how we could see Ezra and Nehemiah sort of operating for most of the books besides the hand of Nehemiah, as we'll see, not together. They, they, they're not talking about each other uh, or about the actions. They're not mentioned in each other's books that much, aside from when they're directly on the pulpit together or, or working on a reform together, which would seem odd as they're the two leaders of the people uh, and sort of their narratives are split. So it definitely seems to be that Ezra and Nehemiah were occupying two different spheres. Ezra was leading the people in the spiritual and Nehemiah was the political leader of the people. And really the two leaders did not overlap with each other too much or didn't step on each other's toes and allowed each of them to operate in their own spheres. The rest of the first pedic is Nehemiah's prayer and cry out to Hashem about the situation that the Jews are in. As we'll see in the beginning of the second pedic, it does take a couple of months for Nehemiah to actually bring up the situation before the king. I will bring that up, but in the meantime, we'll see Nehemiah is definitely deeply concerned with the state of the Jews, and we'll go and explore his prayer uh, now. Pasuk Dalit. And it was when I heard these things, I sat and cried and mourned for several days, and I was fasting and crying out before the God of the heavens. 
We see right away Nehemiah's response was a long-term response. Uh, his answer, his immediate answer to Hananiah and the rest of the Jews is not even given. For Nehemiah, this was clearly a problem that had to be dealt with with a proper solution. It wasn't uh, something which he expressed sympathy for and went and tried to talk to some people. Uh, this was clearly something which he sat down and had a long planning period. As we saw, he didn't come to the king for several months in which he sought out how he could best help the Jewish people. Pasuke. And I said, I beg of you, God, Lord of the skies, the great and awesome God, keeper of the covenant and kindness for those who love him and for those who keep his commandments. Pasuk Vav. May your ears listen and your eyes be open to listen to the prayer of your servant that I pray before you today, night and day, regarding the children of Israel, your servants, and to the confession which I confess on the sins of the children of Israel that we have committed against you, and me and my father's household have sinned. Already in this short prayer, we're beginning to see the strokes of brilliance of Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, of course, immediately, as any great man and tzaddik would do, he turns to Hashem and recognizes that everything is in the hands of Hashem. But more than that, he immediately assumes responsibility for the situation that the children of Israel are, are in. And this is the marks of the true leader. It's the mark of Nehemiah, someone who's willing to assume responsibility and assume the mantle of leadership for B'nai Israel. As we mentioned earlier, this trait also seemingly gets him into trouble a bit when he takes too much responsibility and pride in the actions that he done. And perhaps indeed we can contrast this slightly with Moshe's hesitancy to accept the leadership uh, in the beginning of Shemot. But nevertheless, the, the speed and response of Nehemiah to accept responsibility is striking. Pasuk Zayin. Havol havan we have been destructive toward you, and we have not kept the commandments and the precepts and the laws that you have commanded Moshe, your servant. After assuming responsibility for the actions, Nehemiah now turns towards Hashem with requests. Pasukhet. Zechor na'at tadavar asher tzivitad Moshe avdecha lemor, atem tim'alu anif tzitzbechem ba'amim. Remember, please, that which you were commanded Moshe, your servant, saying, if you should rebel against me, I will spread you out amongst the nation. Pasuk Tet. V'shavtem elai u'shmartem mitzvotayv asitem otam. Im yeh nidachachem mitzvah shamayim misham akabetzchem. V'habiyotim el makom asher b'charti l'shakenet shemisham. And then you shall return to me, and you will keep my commandments and observe them. Even if your banishment shall be till the ends of the heaven, from there I will gather you, and I will bring you to the place that I chose to rest my name amongst. Drawing from a pasuk in Devarim, Devarim Pereklamid, Pasuk Dawid, here Nehemiah recalls the covenant that Hashem made with Bnei Israel, that no matter how far Bnei Israel may find themselves uh, desolate with the capital of Shushan ruling over them, the instant that they are brought back to the commandments of God and to the Torah, Hashem will bring them from wherever they may be and bring them back into Eretz Yisrael. Pasuk Yud, Lehem avadecha ve'amecha, 
אשר פדית בכוחך הגדול ובידך החזקה. And they are your servants and your nation, which you redeem them with your great strength and your powerful hand. Nehemiah here is saying, and even more so, forget about the promise you made. They're your nation. They're your people. Nehemiah is clearly bringing up the terms using Yitzhak Mitzrayim the same way in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Hashem took his people out and went to save for them. So too here, Nehemiah is asking for a similar miracle of Hashem coming and saving the day for the Jewish people. Pasuk Yedalet. I beg of you, Lord, may your ears listen to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who want to hear your name and grant success to your servant today and make him the object of mercy before this man. And I was the king's cupbearer. In this pasuk, Nehemiah ends off his prayer. He seems to indicate that he has knowledge of B'nai Shah wanting to do tshuva and returning to Hashem. Uh, perhaps this prayer is sort of an extrapolation of a period of, of time that Nehemiah was talking to the people of Shushan and organizing them to act and do tshuva. As we said, it will be several months before Nehemiah does speak to the king. So perhaps... In the interim, Nehemiah had gotten knowledge that the people were doing tshuva, were working together to try to return to Hashem. The parak ends up setting us up for the rest of the story, stating not part of the prayer that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, uh, to give us context to his position and to the access he had to the king. And as we'll see, he strategically uses that in the next parak to help the Jewish people.